Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with the author of the book, The Rise of Big Data Policing, Surveillance, Race, and the Future of Law Enforcement. Professor Andrew Guthrie Ferguson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can we start off by letting our listeners know a little bit more about you and your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. I am a law professor at the UDC David A. Clark School of Law here in Washington, D.C. I write and teach about criminal law and criminal procedure and evidence, and I study sort of the intersection of new technologies and old law, about how our old doctrines get distorted in new worlds where we have new technologies, everything from predictive policing to the Internet of Things. Uh, to I wrote an article called Trial by Google, uh, and I sort of play around with how these old doctrines are being shaped by new technologies. Um, and so it's been a fascination to me, and it all evolved uh, eventually into a book. So... Often the legal community is accused of being a little bit behind the times with data and technology. When it comes to policing, using technology like this, where do you think we are compared to, say, private industry? Well, I think that policing technology is very far ahead of the law, uh, about where the law is in terms of our regulations, our privacy concerns, our security concerns. I think that policing and technology is not quite as far ahead as some of the real commercial advances, in part because of the money involved and the, the startup money that is going into those uh, fields. Um, but, you know, police are pretty much uh, moving forward like the rest of the world. And they've realized that more information can help them do their jobs more efficiently can do it better, potentially. Uh, and even if it can't in the, the reality of actually improving things, it's always better to be seen as being smart on crime than not. And so many police departments have adopted these technologies even before we figured out whether they work or not. So I think that most of us have come into contact with rather startling big data results. So for instance, I have an Amazon account and I will purchase something on Amazon. Maybe I will have been watching a scary zombie movie and I start to freak out because it's two in the morning and I buy a water purification (laughs) set and some face masks. And then Amazon will assume, oh, so you are our doomsday prepper and they'll start recommending things to me. And I think, no, 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 Amazon. I was just really freaked out after watching a zombie movie. What can data currently show private companies about us. In reading your introduction, I was really kind of alarmed. What have you found is the sort of current state of private industry and everything that's being tracked about us? So if you think about your normal life and how you interact with third parties, be it through the things you Google, the things you buy on Amazon, the information you post on Facebook or Twitter, the information sources you're getting from the internet, which many people get their news, All of that is tracked. All of that is being watched and observed by companies at this moment um, who are seeking to gain insights about you so that they can sell you more goods and services and the things they need. So you are in, we are all in a world of digital trails where our everyday actions are being recorded and monitored for monetary gain. Um, And this is 
presenting new problems and new opportunities uh, for law enforcement. You know, it used to be if you were a police officer and you wanted to go watch a suspect, you had to like sit in a hot car drinking cold coffee and watch them go from point A to point B to point C and took a lot of uh, manpower and time. Like in the future, you'll be able to, as that same police officer, sit in your office and subpoena, you know, as people leave their smart homes that tell you which room you've gone into and the lights go on and off and get into your smart cars. Even if you have like a GM OnStar car right now, you're being tracked everywhere you go with their smart Fitbits and their smart phones that are GPS tracking devices. We will know where people are going at all times. We'll be able to study these patterns. We'll be able to study where people are going, who they're associating with, in many ways, what they're doing. So all of this data that is being tracked and collected, that's just numbers. How do we use those numbers to actually be able to predict future behavior or tell us something useful about crime in a community or who could potentially be in danger of violence. What's the step between, here's the raw data. So for instance, we saw you bought a water purification set or we see you live in this zip code or we see that you checked in on Yelp that you went to this restaurant. What is the step between, here's this raw data and here's how we're going to use it? So to be clear, there are currently sort of two tracks of data collection. There's the commercial data collection, what we are being, you know, in our consumer state, how we're being watched by companies. And then there's uh, policing data, what the police are collecting about us. Sometimes those two overlap. For example, in the book, I mentioned this uh, service that was piloted called Beware Software. And it was essentially the same sort of big data consumer information that any company can get to sell you a catalog in the mail was being given to the Fresno Police Department so that when police officers were responding to the scene of a crime, they could have insight about who lived in that apartment or that house. So when they went into that house, they know if they were going to be you know, confronting a gangbanger or a grandma. The danger, of course, is that we all get the wrong catalogs in the mail on occasion, and we know that big data technology, certainly in the consumer space, uh, are allowed to be inaccurate. We don't care that much. You know, the cost of inaccuracy really doesn't matter if you get a you know, catalog you don't want, you just throw it in the trash. That might be very different if that information, that inaccurate information was given to a police officer who's going to approach the individuals in that house or apartment in a different way. They might be more alert. They might be more you know, prone to use violence. They think there's going to be a violent person who lives there. And if the data is wrong, it could have real tragic um, results. The difficulty or, or the open question is, obviously, if you're that police officer and you are trying to uh, make a decision about what to do when you go to a house, you do want more information. You would like to have as much information as possible um, before you go in. So there's a real tension there about whether or not these kinds of technologies um, that are borrowed from the consumer space should be used. Separately, police departments and police officers, for example, Chicago, are developing their own uh, systems to determine people that they believe will be the most at risk for violence, either as perpetrators of violence or as victims of violence. For example, they have come up with an algorithmically derived heat list. It's called the strategic subjects list. And it's basically a bunch of inputs. Right now, the, the current inputs are whether you've been arrested for a violent crime, uh, a weapons offense, a narcotics offense, whether you've been the victim of a violent crime or an assault, your age at the last 
uh, arrest, the younger the age, the higher the risk score. And then sort of the trend line is going up or down. And based on that, uh, those factors, the numbers are crunched and you are given a score, 1 to 500, to determine your risk level about whether or not you are more at risk for violence. And that risk number, that threat score, is literally on a dashboard computer. So if police should stop you on the streets of Chicago and look up your name, there will be a score associated with you about whether you're like a 500 or a 2, giving police some sort of sense of your relative risk level. All of this is new. All of this is different from what we've done before. And all of it is potentially troubling um, because obviously that risk number is going to impact how police think of that individual, whether they're a risk or not at that moment, whether they're doing something wrong at that moment or not doing something wrong at that moment. It's all going to impact how police sort of judge the scene and judge the people they're interacting with on a daily basis. You address race in this book and the impact that past racial prejudice and current biases play in this. And Chicago is a great example. Chicago, the city that you know I live and work in, is very segregated. So even if I tell you my neighborhood or my zip code, that's not neutral information. Can you talk about the dangers of treating data as though it can be completely free from bias? Sure. I mean, one of the themes of my book is the theme of black data. I argue in the book that all big data policing has a black data problem. Black both because it's opaque, it lacks transparency. You can't see in this magic black box algorithm that's telling you what to do. But also black because it's racially encoded. The same data that's coming in as inputs is obviously impacted by the policing strategies, practices, and history of a particular area. So, for example, Chicago, which in 2017, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division um, did a very in-depth investigation to find systemic, endemic, historic racial bias in policing is obviously going to have an input on how officers are treating the individuals in their city. And so if one of the inputs for this heat list is arrests, and we know arrests are in part discretionary, and we know that there may be a racial bias problem in Chicago, it means your inputs are also going to be affected by this bias, which means your outputs are going to be affected. And so you can't hide behind the idea that this is simply objective data, and we're just following the data, and this is a new world uh, that doesn't involve you know, implicit or explicit bias, because some of the same inputs are clearly being impacted by uh, race. And one of the, the fears that I have in one of the reasons to write the book was I think that part of the reason we are seeing this rise of big data policing is because it sounds like a good way to sort of move beyond the tension we've seen over the last couple of years between communities of color and police, between, you know, the, the examples of racial bias in policing, and the idea, the, the pitch that you can, you know, move beyond that through objective data-driven policing just isn't as convincing if you start and study how the data is collected, used, and analyzed. There are actually three really interesting terms that you use in the book. You just mentioned black data, and the other two are blue data and bright data. Can we talk about blue data and what you mean by that and then get into bright data? Sure. So blue data is a chapter in the book that says maybe we can take this 
architecture of surveillance that we've built to surveil the citizens and turn it to improve police accountability, right? Those same um, body cameras and surveillance cameras that are all over our cities and, and, and towns um, also are watching police do their jobs every day. We just have to want to sort of look at to see if we can use it as a teaching tool. Um, the same predictive analytics that might predict the people who, are, who could be involved in crime might also be used to predict which officers might be most at risk for violence. And some of this is being done. Um, in Charlotte, Mecklenburg, the police department there partnered with some data scientists out of Chicago, the University of Chicago, to see if they couldn't analyze what were the triggers for sort of violent encounters with police. And they took a tremendous amount of data, like all the, the possible variables they could think about. And they started looking to see where were the patterns where there would be incidents. And they had some interesting insights. One was that Officers who had responded to a scene of a, a really traumatic scene, like maybe it was like a child's death or a suicide, tended to be more at risk for violence in the next shift, which kind of makes sense, right? Police officers sure, are human beings. human beings. They see something. Yeah. Right. They see trauma. They're not fully uh, able to process that trauma, as no one really is, and not given the, the resources to do it. And so when they have to go to the next, you know, emergency situation, the next shift, they either overreact or they react in a way that is less constructive. And there's an easy solution. Like, don't send that person, that officer, to the next scene the next time around, right? And so those kinds of insights can happen. The same predictive analytics that we've been using can happen. There's another really interesting study out of uh, Oakland, California. Jennifer Eberhardt out of Stanford basically did a really deep dive into the data of how Oakland PD was doing their job, in part they were doing it because there was a federal consent decree requiring them to do it. Um, but they found some interesting insights. One, they found a racial disparity about uh, whether officers used handcuffs and when, who they stopped and when they stopped. But more interesting, they did things like they would take the audio of the body camera footage, right? So the, the, the voices of police body cams. And they mined them for data to see whether they could tell a difference between the way officers treated black people and white people. And they could, and they were even able to predict, just by the language studied, whether an officer was talking to a black person or a white person based on the types of words used, so the apologies, the ma'am, sir, the respect shown. And this is probably something that none of the officers were, were aware of. I'm sure this is a, a great example of sort of implicit bias of how you treat different people differently without really thinking about it. But it's also a wonderful teaching tool, right, that maybe this kind of awareness using data could actually improve policing, improve police accountability, improve police training, uh, and might be a way to take the same sort of data technologies and turn it toward a positive end. Um, you asked about bright data. There's a theme in the book, one of the chapters is about bright data, and it talks about the idea of, well, maybe we can separate the risk identification insights of predictive analytics from the remedy of policing. You know, predictive policing basically says, look, we can identify the places where crime might occur and the people who might be involved in crime. Uh, and then the result and, and the remedy has been, like, well, we'll send a police car to that place and hope that that police car will deter crime. Or we'll send a person to the person who is at risk for, for crime. Uh, maybe that police presence will deter them. But it doesn't require a policing remedy. You could just as easily send you know, a social services person to help the person who was identified to be at risk of violence and tell them to get on the other path. If there's something about the sort of physical environment of a neighborhood that's causing crime, you could fix up the area. You don't actually have to put a police car there, right? But because we have always thought about predictive policing as involving policing, we sort of conflate the risk and the remedy, um, and they're separable. You really can actually use a lot of the valuable technologies to identify 
places of crime and people involved in criminal activities and have a different response, a more social services response. I kind of joke, like, the problem with predictive policing is the policing part, right? There are other ways you can approach the same sort of environmental problems in society and address them in ways that do not involve a complete police response. Yes, you had a sentence in the book that I actually wrote down because I I found it profound, which is, data identifies the disease but offers no cure. I think that's accurate, right? Yeah, yeah. That spoke to me. I think that it's very easy as someone who isn't necessarily a programmer or involved in creating these algorithms or analyzing this data to sort of depersonalize it and treat it as though these were sort of handed down by God. But these are people creating these and doing this work. And I thought one of the anecdotes in your book that was very instructive was the identification of wolf photos versus dog photos. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that example comes from a terrific book by Pedro Domingo is called The uh, Master Algorithm. And in it, he tells a story about some of the early artificial intelligence testing. And they decided to test the computer by seeing if the computer could identify sort of wild dogs and wolves. And if you think about like dogs and wolves are obviously come from the same lineage. And the question was, well, could a computer really figure out the difference just by looking at the images, like do sort of facial recognition, body recognition of the two different animals? And when they tested it, the computer scored perfectly, like impossibly perfectly. They're like, this is amazing. We are genius programmers. And then they realized that the reason why the algorithm had done so well was all of the wolf pictures had snow in the background and none of the dog pictures did. So all the computer had done was recognize snow in the background and not uh, the difference between the wolves and the dogs. And that kind of sort of missing the piece of why, of taking correlation over causation, of uh, sort of defaulting to the computer is a real warning, right? Because if you are identifying, you know, people involved in crimes through facial recognition and there's something going on that isn't about the facial recognition, but about something in the, in the program, in the background, that can have real consequences to human beings who are brought into the criminal justice system, who are suspected of crimes, who are arrested. Uh, and we're moving to that world where facial recognition is going to be a much bigger part of police investigation, where a lot of the correlative uh, suspicion that gets created from data is going to be the beginnings of investigations. And if we're not careful, if we don't have people who are sort of versed in sort of the dangers of data-driven theory and practice, we are going to make a lot of mistakes, and those mistakes are going to affect real people. Speaking of those mistakes possibly affecting real people, you know, part of criminal justice reform and, and some of the efforts, one of the things that's being looked at is bail reform, and one of the potential tools that have been proposed are risk assessments, and those being used to determine who can get bail and who cannot sort of can have their own pitfalls. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So risk assessments are you know, mathematically driven algorithms to determine whether or not, based on certain sets of inputs, sometimes that's like your past crime history or your employment context, your family sort of stability, whether you are a good person to, in the pretrial context, uh, be released from prison before your court date uh, or held in prison because you might be a danger. And in sentencing, it can be used to sort of impact how you are sentenced in terms of the number of months or years that you get uh, and about whether you will be, you know, whether you will recidivate 
later. And so these are, are mathematical formulas that are now being used to sort of help judges think through the problems of uh, whether or not someone stays or goes in prison or gets sentenced or not. And the difficulties are the same difficulties we see in the policing context, right? You have these inputs that correlate with what we think is supposed to uh, be revealing and insightful. Um, but A, we don't really know they work. We're not positive that they work. We don't have any full tests that they work. And B, we're, we're concerned that sometimes those correlations actually have more to do with poverty or uh, racial bias. And it's very hard to uh, disentangle those concerns from the algorithm. So there's been a lot of debate recently about whether courts should be adopting risk assessments. And in many cases, they are. Uh, and in many circumstances, they've been doing it actually for a, a long time without anyone really paying attention. But they are getting more sort of media focus and news focus because there have been a couple of stories about their inaccuracies and their racial bias. And those same concerns and sort of that same focus, I hope, gets brought to predictive policing technologies and some of the other surveillance technologies to see whether or not this impacts different people differently. I like to say that, you know, big data policing is a civil rights issue because it really does impact different communities in different ways. And it mirrors many of the traditional civil rights battles uh, impacting communities of color and poor communities in ways that don't impact more privileged and in some cases white communities. You also talk in the book about data holes, and this seems to relate directly to what you were just talking about in our sort of class-based system and the fact that we have this world of commercial data collection and then the police databases. You know, if I am a upper middle class white woman living in a zip code where there's there's not much crime, there may be a whole wealth of commercial data available on me and then just a lack. Can you talk about data holes? Right. So one of the concerns with basing a policing system on data is we have unequal sort of systems of data. We have unequal commercial systems where companies care more about people with money than they do with people without money. So there's less need to be accurate about people without a whole lot of sort of disposable income to spare. Um, and then policing systems that are collecting data on communities and communities that they are surveilling and leaving out whole other communities. Uh, and, you know, the biggest data hole and the biggest concern I have with sort of this rise of big data policing is that most crime, or at least 50% of crime, is never even recorded, right? If you think about all the crimes that happen in people's houses, sexual assault, child abuse, um, certain kinds of possessionary offenses, those are never reported at the rates of other crimes. And so if you start redesigning your policing systems based on the crimes you can record, you're necessarily going to ignore crimes that you can't record or are more difficult to record. And that is a real problem, right? It's a real problem with resource allocation. It's a real problem with which communities get focused on. You know, it's a problem that's solvable. Obviously, police recognize this and they certainly can react to it. Um, but there's an attraction that you, if you can you know, measure it, it matters. And if you can't measure it, it doesn't matter. And we see that all the way through all sorts of you know, technologies and businesses. But it's a risk in this new policing world where there's a desire and a goal to collect more data in order to shape policing strategies. Uh, and it's hard when there are places where there are really large data holes. So you say that when you're approached and asked what sort of advice you would give to, say, a police department or a city that's considering moving towards more of a database policing method, you have five fundamental questions that you ask. Can you just really briefly run us through those five questions? Sure. You know, as sort of a background, so 
you know, I wrote this book about the problem of policing. And I wrote it from a perspective of sort of, you know, a civil libertarian and a critic who has been doing it. And I realized at the end of the day that in many ways this book was for police administrators, like just the guys and the women who were tasked by their chief to make a decision about some new technology that a new vendor is pitching them. And that this police officer almost by definition is not a computer scientist. They don't have a PhD in, you know, artificial intelligence. They, uh, in many ways, probably while aware of the law are not, you know, lawyers. And there's some real difficulties because they are the decision makers about whether or not an entire city gets a new surveillance technology. And so at the end of the book, I sort of try to think through the questions I think that those individuals, those gatekeepers really need to have answers to. And more so that there needs to be a place where they can answer those questions, right? There really is not a uh, democratic sort of engagement in these issues. And something I'm trying to change with this book is something I'm trying to change with my proposal to have surveillance summits, which is where the chief and the mayor and maybe this administrator have to get up in front of the community and explain and defend uh, the technologies that they're using. And in that place in that surveillance summit that I propose, I think they should have to answer these five questions. The first is, can you identify the risks that your big data technology is trying to address, right? Not all communities need all the technology. Some places um, really don't need, you know, surveillance cameras going 24-7. Some communities really don't need predictive policing. In rural communities with just a few officers, they know a lot of the people. They don't need like some big database. They just, they can do it. And so you have to make sure you understand uh, the risks that you're actually trying to use this technology for. The second question is, can you defend the inputs into the system, the accuracy of the data and the soundness of the methodology? You know, data is messy in the best case. And it's really messy if you think about policing, right? In the predictive policing place-based technologies, it's all about sort of localized crime. But imagine you're a police officer. You see a guy in the street. Um, you think he has drugs. You chase him five blocks and you tackle him, you know, and get him and make the arrest. Did the crime happen when you first saw him or were you stopped him five blocks later? Because it matters to the data. If everything's going to be precise around where the crime is, well, where did the crime occur? You don't, you know, there might be two places and that's going confuse the data. So you have to be really careful about these kinds of sort of data inputs. Third, can you defend the outputs of the system, how it will impact policing practice and community relationships? One of the realities I think is pretty much unexamined is the fact that many police officers uh, have a new role in this data-driven uh, you know, world. They have to become data collectors. They have to become data analysts. Then they're not trained for that. The police academy is not training them for that. And maybe it should be. But right now, the data collection requirements is changing how they do their job. And it's changing how they interact with the community. Fourth, can you test the technology, offering accountability and some measure of transparency? Right now, the vast majority of these technologies out there are not being tested, in part because police have to just respond to the next crisis, uh, and it takes money and time to sort of create testing situations in the real world. But we haven't been doing it. Uh, it's too new, and it's too fast moving to really test it. And finally, is the police use of the technology respectful of the autonomy of the people impact, right? We can't forget that they're human beings who are going to be affected, both the civilians and the citizens on the street and the police officers themselves. And if we forget and just focus on the data and not the people, uh, we're going to be doing a disservice to sort of the profession of policing and the relationship between policing and communities. And then I'd like to ask you a personal question. As I was reading through this book, as someone who values her privacy, 
I found a lot of it really alarming. Like I hadn't thought about the extent to which I am tracked or my neighbors in Chicago are tracked. And, you know, there's that instinct to, oh, God, is there some way to hide? How did reporting on this book and researching this book affect you? Were there things that surprised you? Has it made you change any of your behaviors? Well, you know, my hope is that more people will read the book and have that same reaction because the thing I think is missing right now is a debate about it, right? We are not, right now, if you ask two questions, you ask, what are the surveillance technologies being used right now in my community, right this second? Most of us have no idea what the answer is. And the second question is, like, if you want to find that out, where do you go? And in, in all but like, two or three cities in America, there's no place to go find that out. No one's going to tell you even, right? And so that's a problem. It's a democracy problem. It's a problem with how we are engaged. And so as individuals, we can make choices about um, how we deal with technology, the privacy settings we put on our, our phones and our technologies, you know, the information we share on Facebook and the rest. We can, we can make those choices uh, in a way. But I think there's a bigger choice to be made. It's like, how do we want to sort of interact with our cities and our police? And shouldn't we have a voice such that there's one moment a year where we are told, by the way, the following technologies have been bought with your taxpayer dollars. Uh, they're going to be used in these certain ways. They're going to be audited in these certain ways. We are aware of the black data problems that Professor Ferguson has you know, announced to the world. And so we've dealt with issues of racial bias. We've dealt with issues of transparency, dealt with issues of constitutional distortion. And we are going to move forward. We want you to know this. You can vote on it. You can decide on it. You can reelect us or not. But we need to tell you this is going on. And that debate is not really happening. The ACLU in Massachusetts has actually done a great job trying to promote it in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, and now Cambridge, Massachusetts. There's actually a vote in Cambridge that's going uh, forward in the next couple months about that. Santa Clara, California, is a city that actually has a civilian oversight board. There's debates in New York City, in Oakland, Seattle, about sort of particular police technologies and whether there should be sort of civilian oversight of some of this use. But it is a debate that should be national and is not national, in part because people haven't been paying attention to what's happening and because policing is very localized. There's something like 17,000 different law enforcement agencies in America, if you add up all the local, municipal, state, and federal entities. And it's really hard to track that, right? It's really hard to sort of move and, and have any impact on it because there's so many different moving parts. So this is going to take sort of a democracy moment, take a sort of engagement moment. And right now, I don't think people have really put it all together yet, perhaps in part because no one had written a book about it. Now they have. Uh, but perhaps because it just hasn't been seen as a national problem. And my hope is that it soon will be. So if I am one of our Modern Law Library listeners and... I've been fired up by this, and I want to take some steps in my local community. What do you think are some things that individuals or attorneys can do to start off this discussion in their community? Ironically, first you have to buy a book on Amazon and be tracked to know that you care about this issue, but that's just a sub-point. <laughs> um, but if you really want to get involved in it, you need to figure out if there is a local organization, again, the ACLU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Center for um, Technology and Democracy, or national groups that have sort of been building out an awareness, a grassroots awareness, not together, but independently doing these things. 
This is a question that honestly any citizen and certainly any lawyer citizen could ask their chief or their mayor, like, hey, what are the technologies being used? In uh, New York City, you know, a city council person, Dan Grodnick, had proposed a sort of civilian oversight, uh, and there was a real debate about it, and at least there was a debate about it. You can ask your city council person, like, what are the technologies being used? How are they being used? In Chicago, which is really one of the epicenters of this sort of rise of big data policing, um, the police are pretty forthcoming with the technologies they're using. Uh, And if we could have a debate about it, maybe the citizens of Chicago say this is fine. Maybe they say this is too invasive. Maybe they say this is promising, but we need the following checks on it. So my hope is that lawyers and citizens and activists and police themselves um, will sort of get together to start a debate and discussion about it. But the first thing we have to do is educate ourselves, because right now, people don't even know what they don't know about how big data policing is changing, how police police, who they police, where they police, and when they police. So thank you again to our guest, Andrew Guthrie-Ferguson, author of The Rise of Big Data Policing. Andrew, if people are interested in contacting you or finding out more about this book or your work, where could they go? Do you have any social media or web pages to point them to? In another irony of big data, I am perfectly available on the web. You can just Google my name, Andrew Guthrie Ferguson. I have a Twitter handle of Prof Ferguson, and I am very easily searchable thanks to the miracle that is big data. (laughs) And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast listening service is.